This morning, I'd like you to open your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 9, where we're going to continue our look into this marvelous letter, and more specifically, this challenging chapter. As I was preparing this week, um, in anticipation of what's in front of us, uh, just this thought came over me as I was studying that the hits just keep coming. This is a really challenging chapter concerning the things that Paul is teaching and sharing. And, and as Paul keeps moving forward, his discussion on the elective, divine, sovereign love of God, he continues to present the facts that God's word is true and that he is... Um, working his purposes through his divine choice. Those are not easy things to reconcile. And we've been talking about that for quite a few weeks now. I mean, over the last few months, uh, as we've been in Romans chapter 8 and now into Romans chapter 9, uh, I'm sure you've been troubled by some of the things that we've looked at. And I think it's okay to admit that. It's okay to admit that there are times in the Word of God that we're challenged and, and, and maybe we're trying to reconcile some of God's truth and we're wondering, what does this mean and how should it apply and what does it mean about what I know to be true about the Lord? Now, I haven't noticed a, a line of people in front of my office after the sermons where it's like, you know, take a number because I'm trying to figure this out and I have some questions for you, but... Maybe you've gone home and you've wrestled with some of these things with the Lord saying, God, just show me your word. Because I know for me, there are some things that I knew to be true, but even in my preparation for this passage, God has shown me some new things. And he continues to challenge me. Next week, we're going to look at another challenging passage where God prepares some vessels for love and some vessels for wrath. And that his, that's his divine prerogative because he is the potter. I'd like to say I know what all that means. I don't. I just know that his word says that it is true. Passages like Romans chapter 9 are one of the reasons why I love God's Word. It really is. I love it because it's not easy. It's not simple. It's not something that you can put on a flannel graph and say, here it is in a nice, cute, wonderful package. Paul and the other writers of Scripture do not sugarcoat anything. They don't make it easy. They're not apologists. As Paul and the other writers of the New Testament and even into the Old Testament, they're, they're not defending things for the sake of making it palatable for us. They're not trying to soften anything for us. They're not trying to make us feel good all the time about what we read. It's a no-holds-barred approach of revealing truth. And I love that about Scripture. I love it because if I were to design 
anything about God, if I were to come up with this truth about who God is, I would certainly want to hedge my bets and, and apologize and soften and, and make everything fit in a nice and easy package because in my mind, that seems more appealing. But we don't get that here in Scripture. We just get what God does. We get His truth revealed about who He is. And it reminds me that it's not my job to make truth work for me. It's my job, it's up to me, and it's up to you to have faith in what His Word says. Now we should contend and wrestle over passages like this. You should feel uneasy. You should. As you wrestle and work through the tension that exists in Romans 9 and God's sovereign choice and what that means and what it looks like and how it applies. You should ask questions. But when you run out of questions to ask, and I think sometimes more importantly, when you run out of the answers that satisfy, you know what I mean? Do you ever ask a question that you never got an answer to concerning God's truth? I probably have more questions than answers when it concerns the Scriptures. But when you run out of the answers that satisfy that you can rest in the goodness of God because our God is certainly good. And even here in a passage that talks about God's divine elective love you can rest in His goodness. His goodness is here in this passage. But it's still unsettling. Today, we're going to look at the issue of God's justice or the justice of God in unconditional election. And we're asking the question about unconditional election, the question that comes to us in the text, the question that Paul supposes that is in the mind of the reader, but also the question that we think about when we hear these things that God, before time began, chose people that would be His. The question is this, is God just in choosing some people? But before we even ask that question, I think we need to ask the question, is it true? Is election true? I mean, you can't answer the second question without first understanding the first question. Is the doctrine of God's sovereign election true? Is it a fact that God has chosen people from every tribe and language and tongue irrespective of anything that He has seen in them, that He has chosen them just for His own sovereign purposes. Is that true? And so I think before we go on and debate and discuss and try to determine all the things that we try to figure out as armchair theologians, what does it mean that God chooses? On what basis? How does it affect us? What, in what relation does it affect our witnessing? All those kinds of things. We need to just settle in our minds. Is it true first 
that God has chosen people to be His own. And I would like to say to you that the biblical evidence for unconditional election is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. There's not just a little bit of information about it. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of truth. There's, there, there's this idea that God makes it abundantly clear that He sovereignly, by His divine prerogative, chooses who will be His. And what that means is that some are passed over. We just wrestled with this in Romans chapter 9 with Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. In Romans chapter 8, we looked at the fact that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called, those who are chosen according to His purpose. We spent some time in Ephesians 1 where it says, before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Him. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, we read that those who were appointed were the ones who believed. Even Jesus Himself said in John 15, 16, that His disciples did not choose Him, but He chose them. Now these statements defining God's sovereign choice of believers are not in the Bible to cause controversy. The Apostle Paul wasn't thinking, hey, what truth can I come up with that will divide God's people? And yet, if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, you understand that truths like this have divided God's people. And I'd like to say, if we could, that we would agree with Paul in verse 18, or verse 14, when it comes to this truth for us, may it never be. May it never be for us that we would divide. We may not understand it all. We may not be able to give a complete under, or definition of what all these things mean, but that as we rest in the truth of God's word, we can say, Our God is good in all that he does. Now, this idea of God's election doesn't mean that sinners do not make choices. I think we sometimes add that to the definition. We think, well, if God chooses, then we're just a bunch of robots programmed, and we're just doing our thing irregardless of anything that we can do in ourselves. But election does not exclude human responsibility. It does not exclude the necessity of each person to respond to the gospel by faith. And Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so as I rest in these truths, the more I realize what God is saying, the more I Uh, come to an understanding of, of, of what I can understand in my finite brain about what these truths teach us, the more I am able to rest in God's love. Because the truth is, He did not have to choose to love. 
He did not have to. God is not compelled to as creator. But he did. And the fact that you are here this morning as a person that knows the love of God revealed through Jesus Christ is a fact that God chose to love you. I hope that encourages your heart this morning. By the looks of your faces, maybe you're still thinking about it. But I hope it gives you comfort. Now this morning, as I said, we're confronted with this question that naturally exists when the finite mind considers the infinite things of God. The question is this, if God does sovereignly choose who are his, is he still a God of justice? Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now this phrase, what shall we say then, is a phrase that Paul used at least six times in Romans so far as he is dealing with potential misunderstandings. As Paul is teaching truth all throughout Romans, he'll sometimes interject, what shall we say then? He's assuming the questions that are in our minds based on the hard things that he is revealing. He is already handling the head-scratching that exists when you come across difficult things. And so he wants to remedy the potential misunderstandings. He wants to head off at the pass all of the objections. One translation of this passage, it's called the Phillips translation, says this concerning verse 14. Do we conclude that God is monstrously unfair? Never. May it never be. I've said this before about this phrase, may it never be in the Greek language. It's the strongest negative that you can write in the Greek language. It means God is not unjust, not at all, not ever. There is not one iota, not one smidgen, not one speck of injustice in God's sovereign election. How do we know this? Right? Isn't that the question that we sometimes wrestle with, with when we ask these things? How do we know for sure? Well, when we look at a question like this, we have to rest in what we know. And what we know is that the center of the character of God is that He does all things perfectly. He does all things perfectly. He is perfect in knowledge, wisdom, power, presence, faithfulness, goodness, justice, mercy, grace, love, and holiness. He is perfect. And if God's justice were to waver just a little bit, like if there was some way that we could show and defend our feelings of that doesn't seem fair, and we could prove it somehow in one minuscule way, then we have no gospel at all. There is no good news. Because at that point, 
we have to presume that we cannot know anything to be good that comes from God. And so when we say that God is perfect in all of his ways, we're not just saying blindly, yeah, he's God, it's all figured out. No, we know for sure again and again in the scriptures that God does not waver in who he is and his character. The other thing that we realize when it comes to these hard questions is God does not answer to anyone. Now, as we grow up, whether we are this high or this high, or for some of you, like Jeff, that high, we answer to people in life. It might be in the responsibility in the, in the human uh, relationships of family and the dynamics there. It might be a, if you're an employee and you have a boss or you have a supervisor over you. Uh, we answer to the local authorities. We answer to people around us. We, we answer to who we are in this world. God does not answer to anybody. He is not responsible to anyone. He is totally, absolutely sovereign. Now, Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't ask the question in verse 14 and say, may it never be, and then move on thinking, okay, you guys should understand it. Believe it by faith. Let's go. As a good teacher, he takes us to Scripture, and he shows us in two ways as he walks us through the book of Exodus that God is a God of justice. And there are two examples given in the preceding verses that highlight the justice of God in what He does. The first one is found in verse 15. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul says, for he says to Moses, the word for connects us to the reason we must reject that God is unjust. This is the illustration now. And and Paul quotes directly from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. For he says to Moses, God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me give you the the quick rendering of what this phrase is. What this means. And then we're going to take a minute and look at it in its context. Very quickly, what this means is, He is God, you are not. That's it. That's enough. But when you look at the context of Exodus, it helps you understand what God was saying to Moses When he declared this, that God is just in choosing whoever he desires. Now, we looked at Exodus 33 a couple weeks ago when we introduced this idea in Romans 9 that Paul is now dealing with where does Israel fit in God's plan? Because if the church is this new grafted in mystery, what happened to God's chosen people that he gave all of these promises to? And as Paul is defending the truth of God in dealing with these chosen people, and we talked last week that just because you belong nationally to Israel doesn't mean that you are a child of the promise. 
that it's more about who you believe in and have faith in than it is where your bloodline comes from. But now as Paul brings this quote up from Exodus 33, we understand that what's going on is we're at the heels of the golden calf. Remember, Paul, or Moses is up on the mountaintop revealing or uh, being revealed to the law of God. He's, he's communing with God. He's receiving God's truth. He's writing it down on tablets. He's understanding what it's going to mean to lead these people out of Egypt into the promised land. God is their God. He is his people. And there are going to be rules that govern the relationship. And as Moses is experiencing the presence of God, the glory of God on the mountaintop, the nation of Israel is fearful at the base of the mountain. And in their fear, they erect a golden calf. And they begin worshiping that and dancing around it and paying homage and giving glory to what they have fashioned with their hands. Moses came down off the mountain. He was so angry that he broke the tablets that he had just received from God. And he's like, what is wrong with you people? God is ready to wipe them all out. He's ready to start over. He says to Moses, hey, you and me, we'll start over. What happens? Well, Moses intercedes for the people on their behalf. And he says, God, I would rather take their place. Now, that's not going to happen. But God relents. And as the nation is preparing to resume the journey to the land of promise, Moses requests in Exodus 33 to see the glory of the Lord and to continue to be present with his people even though they rejected him. He begs to see the glory of God. And if you read in Exodus 33, when he makes this request to see the glory of God, and the glory of God is that which we know is the essence of his beauty, purity, and holiness. It is who God is. In Exodus 33, verse 20, God says to Moses that nobody can see his face and live. Our sinfulness prevents us from seeing God's holiness. But God says, listen, here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. You want to see my glory? Go hide in the rock. And I'm going to pass by you. And when I pass by you, you'll get to see the tail end of my glory. You'll be able to catch a glimpse as it passes by. And what God says to Moses in this exchange is quoted by Paul here in Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is what God is saying to Moses. Listen, at the golden calf, the whole nation was guilty. Moses cried out for God's favor and says, I would rather take their place. Please, God, spare them. God says, listen, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And what do we read that happens in Exodus as a result of the golden calf? 3,000 people from the nation of Israel perished. They died. They were judged by God. Now, in the mind of the person that's there, you're thinking, why those 3,000? Why not the whole nation? The whole nation's guilty. Why only those 3,000? 
What about the families of those that saw someone in their family be judged and killed for their disobedience? The question hangs in the mind, why? Why them? Why not everyone or why not nobody? I mean, why, why can't everyone just receive mercy and compassion? And God declares to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm God. You are not. Central to the argument of God's justice is that he has mercy on those who he chooses to have mercy on. This is what we need to understand when it comes to God's mercy. He is never obligated to be merciful. If he was, if God was obligated to be merciful, it's not mercy. It's not mercy. What is mercy? Mercy, by its definition, is the withholding of punishment that is deserved. God withholds punishment. We talk about grace as receiving something that we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding punishment that we do deserve. God does not have to be merciful, but he chooses to be merciful. And if a person insists on receiving just treatment from God, they're in a dangerous place because all that they should justly receive is condemnation. God chooses to be merciful on whom He chooses to have mercy. And He will have compassion on whom He chooses to have compassion. Listen, we can't be like we were when we were children saying to our parents, it's not fair. We need to trust. We need to know that what God does is perfectly good because He is good. In verse 16, Paul adds and he says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now this verse highlights the unconditionality of God's chosen purpose. His sovereign actions. Paul mentions two things about man that do not depend on anything that God does. First, he mentions on the man who wills. That's our desire. It doesn't depend on if we're sitting back saying, God, I hope you do this on my behalf. It doesn't depend on our desire. It also doesn't depend on our effort. That's the man who runs doesn't matter how good we're living. It doesn't matter what our focus is. There is nothing that we can desire or do that would cause God to be merciful. It's His sovereign choice. Now this verse is a heightened repetition of what Paul said about Jacob and Esau in verse 11. In verse 11, we read, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then Paul adds now, it's not about desire, and it's not about effort. 
Mercy that results in salvation is a gift. It is not a result of what we've done. Now, I came across this illustration in a commentary by Pastor Tim Keller this week that I helped me to understand a little bit about what Paul is saying here. Tim Keller says, Consider a rich person who decides to choose 20 inner-city kids and guarantee their full college tuition. There are literally thousands of equally worthy recipients. And this rich woman could help a lot more than 20 children. But can anyone say that since she has helped some, she is being unfair to everyone else? No. She has no particular obligation to help any of the children. Since all she has been given is sheer mercy, there can be no talk about being unfair. That's really what it comes down to. And you know what that does for us? It's corrective for us. At least it should be. So that we don't boast in ourselves. That we don't start patting ourselves on the back saying, look at how good I was to receive such mercy. It's corrective to, to uh, keep us from being prideful in our salvation. Because if we're honest with what God does and how He does it, none of us deserve anything from Him. And so what should that cause us to do? To fall on our knees in praise and to be thankful and grateful for the gift that He has given. Now the second example from Exodus sometimes becomes the more difficult one in this chapter. Verses 17 and 18. For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. (sighs) Why did Paul have to leave in that last part of that quote in verse 18? I, I would love if he would have just said in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, period. Let's move on. But he doesn't. He hardens. God hardens whom he desires. So now we're brought into the example of Pharaoh. We had the example of Moses in Exodus 33 as a believer. Now we have the example of Pharaoh, an unbeliever, from the same book around the same situation. It would seem that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the Lord and he has no chance to receive mercy from God. And before we get too far ahead, that is what happened. That's what the text teaches us. That's what's going on in Exodus when Pharaoh is brought into the the story. Pharaoh's example is the negative side of God's sovereign choice. For the scriptures says to Pharaoh. And this leads us to a quote now from Exodus chapter 9 verse 16. 
The context help, helps us to understand what's going on when God made this declaration. He doesn't say it to Pharaoh. He says it to Moses. And he, God tells Moses, when you stand before Pharaoh, this is what's going on in the situation. This is what you need to say to Pharaoh when you confront him. This is what needs to be a part of when you demand the release of the Hebrew people who have been enslaved by Pharaoh and treated unfairly is going on. In Exodus chapter 9, this quote takes place after the first six plagues of the plagues of the ten plagues that visited Egypt. And so the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh himself has already seen the water of Nile turn to blood. They have seen the pestilence of frogs, lice, flies, infectious disease of cattle, boils on man and beast. They've already experienced these divine plagues that were visited upon this nation for their treatment of Israel and for Pharaoh's unwillingness to let the people go. It will be in this statement that Moses is to deliver that he is to declare that God has raised up Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. Now, some believe that phrase, I have raised you up, means that God appointed Pharaoh as a leader. But I don't think that's what the word means. Because the better understanding of the word in the Hebrew that was translated into the Greek carries the idea that it means that God allowed him to remain, to remain in the midst of the plagues. That as the six plagues came and went, God, by his sovereignty, allowed Pharaoh to remain. Pharaoh deserved death, but God would not take his life through these plagues and the four that are to come. Why? The why is at the end of verse 17. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God was going to be made famous in the nation of Egypt. His name would be proclaimed among the Egyptians and especially the Hebrew people that would leave in the Exodus. But now we read in verse 18 that God shows mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now this hardening, this word hardening, carries with it the idea of being stubborn or inflexible. How many of you people, don't raise hands and don't point fingers, know people that are hard? Right? We know what it's like. Stubborn people, inflexible people, insolent people. The text clearly states that God did this and that it is his sovereign right to harden whoever he desires. Six times in Exodus, it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. It started in Exodus 4 as Moses is beginning his journey with God. God calls Moses at the burning bush. Remember that? And he says, I'm going to send you and you're going to go and you're going to speak. And he's like, well, I can't speak. I'm afraid to speak. I don't want to do this. And God says, all right, I'll give you a helper. But you're going to go and say what I tell you to say. 
And in Exodus 4, it is said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened to fulfill God's plan. And when some people are processing this, they have a hard time reconciling this and say that God is unfair and unjust. Some have even gone on to say, what if Pharaoh was a nice guy? It doesn't seem good or fair that God would turn his heart to a heart of stone. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Are there any nice guys out there, church? No. The balance of Scripture teaches us that the heart is deceptive and wicked, that it's dark and dead, that we are all born in sin. We are all dead in our trespasses. We also read in Exodus six times, and I don't know if it's a parallel like what God has done equals with what we know happens here, or if it's just coincidence, we read it six times in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart towards the Lord. God says he would harden his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So what's going on? Can they both exist? Can man harden his heart to God, and can God harden the heart towards him? Yes. They can both equally exist. They can both be true. Paul already said in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, about the unbelieving carnal world that God gave them over. And I believe that's what's happening in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God gave Pharaoh over to a heart that was already hardened towards him. And I believe that's what we read here in this passage about God's sovereign choice to harden whom he hardens. When God hardens a heart, he simply allows the person to go his or her own way, and he does not intervene. God was not unjust because he allowed this process to continue. The point of Pharaoh's example is that God can freely and justly extend mercy or choose not to extend mercy to those who deserve judgment. That's his choice. Now, when it comes to his sovereign choice, we must be able to know it is true even when our minds think it's unfair. Because when you consider it from God's perspective, it is only by his mercy that he chooses anybody. And so as we close, I want you to consider the question that Paul posed in verse 14. Is God unjust if he sovereignly chooses one over another? Is he? If if you think that God is unjust in choosing one over the other, you are in dangerous place with your theology. Doesn't mean you understand it all. It doesn't mean that you can go to Harvard and walk into a debate with all of these strong, bright minds and and articulate all the defense that goes into God being able to choose whoever he wants to. 
but it means that by faith you can rest in his goodness. And there are certain things, there are certain questions that we're just going to need to leave unanswered. And while you rest in that truth here, realize that God is working through his church to bring the message of Jesus to the nations. That God is calling you to tell people that they can find life and forgiveness in Him. Because it is still critical, it is still crucial that every person comes to faith not because they were chosen alone, but they were, they were chosen by God from His perspective and they responded by faith from our perspective. That both equally exist Church, there are some things that you're going to need to leave in God's hands. But don't let that stop you from the commission that he's given you to go and show his love. And so I want to pray for you now and just ask that God would be gracious to you through his spirit to help you to rest in these truths.